it's not our our deepest nature to be nasty to each other. We can be nasty, very much so, but that's not. We don't have to fight against our our intrinsic evil. We've got to make it possible for us to live in these life-affirming ways. In light of recent events, a discussion about the role of love in our world seems more relevant than ever before. When I say love, I'm not talking about the romantic notion of love that we indulge ourselves in every 14th of February. I'm talking about compassion, empathy and respect that communities and political regimes dispel and strive for. The love that Me Too Sanyal claims is sorely lacking in our world. It's the absence of this love that she believes is responsible for so much social injustice and inequality. For this episode, we will be listening to Me Too Sanyal's Goethe annual lecture, Politics, What's Love Got to Do With It, which took place on the 24th of November at the Goethe Institute London. During her lecture, the author, cultural scientist and journalist will explore the pitfalls and promises of a politics of love in times of ever-growing divisions. This Goethe annual lecture was the first of three this year to celebrate our 60 years anniversary. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sectors, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. I'm your host, Lucy Rowan. It's a preconceived idea that love and politics don't go together, that they are polar opposites. Moreover, love has become a dirty word in politics. We can talk on social media about sex till the cows come home, but love is too cute, too lovey-dovey, and too unpolitical. This has not always been the case. Most movements for social justice had a love of ethics. Gandhi placed love at the centre of his campaign to free India. Martin Luther King preached and practised love. And James Baldwin called for a politics of love. What has happened to marginalised love in the political discourse? And what can politics informed by love look like? Let's find out. First of all, I want to say I'm very happy that you're all here. And I love you very much. I love you, Katarina. I love you, Nas. I love all of you. But what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean when I say I love you? And don't worry, I don't want to... Can I say fuck in a good lecture? I don't want to make love to you all, or at least not in this sense. Um, even though I think that after the last two or three years, we could all do with a lot more sex. Or am I just speaking for myself? Anyway. Too much information. It's always good to start with too much information. Of course I'm speaking about love. I'm a woman. I'm so cis that I haven't worn a pair of trousers in five years, maybe. Love is what being a woman is all about. Still speaking of cis women here. In our society, we don't just gender bodies. We gender emotions as well. Is love an emotion? Good question. Let's talk about that later. So in our society, we gender love as female. Women are supposed to desire love, okay, being loved, to see love as their raison d'etre, which is why they're also supposed to do all the work of love, the thinking and the talking and the caring. And because they do it for love, they do it for free. 
And this is a problem. And I don't have to tell you that. You all know that this is a problem. That's why we've become suspicious of love. Feminists and anti-racists and anti-fascists. And yes, of course, I come from Germany. This is the Goethe Institute. And artists and activists, we all have become jumpy when love is mentioned. We can have kinky sex and talk about taboos till the cows come home to be fucked. But love is rule. Because love is a kind of colored beads we get offered instead of equal pay or any pay more often. And I'm speaking about romantic love here. And I could spend the whole lecture ranting about the ideal of romantic love. But I'm not going to. Because attention is energy, and I don't want to waste any more energy on romantic love. Because when we do one thing, we can't do another at the same time, and I want to talk about love in a political sense. And I want to talk about the function of love in and for communities, and I want to talk about the role of love in politics, and why I want a politics of love. Because I could have started very differently. I could have started like this. Dear listeners, in this lecture, I would point out the conflict lines of our time, Putin and the corona measures, and Putin and, oh, I've deleted Listrasia and Putin. And afterwards, you'll all be able to rant about the screwed up people who disagree with us. Because I will explain to you what makes them tick. Because I am able to read minds. And then we don't, we won't be much smarter, but our views will be confirmed. And that's good enough for speech after all, isn't it? And this is, of course, irony. But at the moment, a lot of political an analysis and argument follows these patterns, really. So basically, we all say, aren't these people stupid because they're stupid and everybody agrees? And I've always thought that was because you don't listen enough to each other. You don't understand what the other people means. You don't understand the other people's arguments enough. You don't have enough knowledge. And so I've talked more and more and some more. And, and when I look back at all the lectures I've given and the discussions in social and traditional media um, and everything, I've often experienced that even all the arguments have been exchanged. We're still angry. And, and uh, that always makes me think of an ex-boyfriend of mine who was convinced I just didn't understand him when I disagreed and kept on explaining. And sometimes I feel like we've all become that ex-boyfriend. And that's quite a chilling thought. Even without politics, love is a revolutionary act. And why is love such a revolutionary act? Because the first thing we teach people that we want to subdue or colonize or discriminate against, the first thing we teach them is that they are not lovable. And this is so important because we only have empathy with people we consider as worthy of being loved, worthy of love. Which is also why only these people can claim empathy. So it's no coincidence that marginalized people share the feeling that they're less worthy than others to be more precise, less worthy of love. And, and a sentence like, why would anybody love someone like me or shorter? Do I deserve love? Isn't an individual sentence or an individual problem. It's a structural problem. And of course, it can become an individual problem, but that's another lecture. And um, the fear not to be loved to have to do an enormous amount of work to deserve love does something to us and it does something detrimental to us. And this is a trick with love, with the threat of losing love. It's a political weapon and it doesn't even have to be a real threat. Just the fear of losing love or never getting enough love is enough to cripple people psychologically and physically. Um, and the writer and philosopher James Baldwin describes this very impressively. 
1971, he wrote an open letter to philosopher and civil rights activist Angela Davis, who was in prison at the time. Dear sister, writes Baldwin, the American triumph, in which the American tragedy has always been implicit, was to make black people despise themselves. Black people were killing each other every Saturday night out on Lenox Avenue when I was growing up. And no one explained to them or to me that it was intended that they should, that they were penned where they were like animals in order that they should consider themselves no better than animals. And few writers have better expressed the challenge and pain and, and the difficulty of loving yourself under these conditions. And by the way, Angel Davis was freed from prison by a massive wave of solidarity, nationally and internationally. And that was the first example of successful love politics that I can remember in my life. So we can change the way our love can change the way the world is. But back to James Baldwin. I love James Baldwin so much because James Baldwin loves so much. Because Baldwin connects with the world via love. And that includes the world of thought as well. And he never abandons this connection, no matter how much the world tries to make him hate. And he writes, I saw nothing very clearly, but I did see that, that my life, my real life was in danger. And not from anything other people might do, but from the hatred I carried in my own heart. And his essay, Letter from a Region in My Mind, appeared in the New Yorker in 1962. And in it, he explains that hate is self-destructive and that we need love to transform ourselves and society. And he says, the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of the other. He means we don't have to cuddle with our opponents. We don't have to like everything we do. they do. We don't even have to feel a deep sense of attachment to them. But we have to base our relationship on love, act like lovers. And in response, the philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote to him, your article in the New Yorker is a political event of the highest order. I think it certainly is an event in my understanding of what is involved. Basically, she says that, that, that his article changed her understanding of the N-word question. And that is really impressive because racism was, to put it blind, politely, the blind spot in Hannah Arendt's work. And only three years earlier, she'd spoken out against the abolition of race segregation in schools in an article. So that is really interesting. So she can change her mind about race, but she can't change her mind about love. So um, she writes him, only in one point she vehemently disagrees with him. She writes, in politics, love is a stranger. And when it introduces upon it, nothing is being achieved except hypocrisy. And this is based on Hannah Arendt's conviction that love cannot be political because love negates plurality. Whereas for Baldwin, plurality is a precondition for love. I think they're talking about different kinds of love, by the way. And they're talking about different kinds of experiences. But that is very, very, very interesting. And um, he says, love is not a sentimental escapism but a confrontation with the world. And she says, no, love is just, we want to just see ourselves in the other, and so there's no plurality. And he says, no, it's the opposite. We want to understand, we want to take somebody else as seriously as we take ourselves. And so he says, sentimentality, the ostentatious parading of excessive and spurious emotion as the mark of dishonesty, the inability to feel, the wet eyes of the sentimentalist betray his aversion to experience, his fear of life, his arid heart, 
and is all, always there for the signal of secret and violent inhumanity, the mask of cruelty. I excite Baldwin here so much because I really like his writing. I really like the sound of his voice. So, sorry, Hannah Arendt. In this case, I do agree with James Baldwin. Even though I love Hannah Arendt, precisely because I love her, Hannah doesn't have to be perfect to deserve my love. And for that reason, I can deal with the fact that there are central parts of Hannah Arendt's work that are very, very racist indeed. And that's plurality. Perceiving others as different from, from us and still loving them. Not agreeing with them, but still loving them. Because the you is always bigger than the I. So our shared humanity is based on the fact that we are not able to successfully pigeonhole the other person. And neither ourselves, so we can't pigeonhole ourselves either, by the way. We are contradictory, we are a bundle of emotions and feelings and thoughts and ideas. And the writer and anarchist Gustav Landauer once said, the most revolutionary act is to treat the people we love well. He hasn't said that. But what he said is, the state is a relationship. It is a partnership between people, a way that people relate to one another. We destroy the state by forming other relationships, by relating differently to each other. And that's why the philosopher Bell Hooks believes love and defines love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's others, one's own or another spiritual growth. She also says, love isn't a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is something we do. We always tend to forget that. So to love means to recognize each other as equals, to place the concern for another person's welfare on the same level as the concern for our own welfare. Not higher, not lower, on the same level. So I'm not sacrificing myself for you and I say I love you, nor do I expect you to sacrifice yourselves for me. Um, and that's a problem because we, we live in a culture where we, where we, where we live in a culture of, um, of compromise. So our idea is so everybody gives something up and then we meet in the middle. And what I do, what I'm talking about is a culture of consent, where people first have to say what they want, what they really want. But now our culture, basically, when we say what we want, we're seen as the, as the egotistical ones. So the more sacrifices we make, the better we are. And I, I had a mother who, who really, she was a very good person. She made loads of sacrifices. And it's not easy to live with people like that. So in the end, there will always be some kind of leveling out, no matter how many sacrifices they make for you. And even if it's just your bad conscience. So it doesn't matter. So the idea of consent is when you really say what you mean, you take the other's need as seriously or as, as, um, um, as your own, then you will find something that you can both agree on. And then you can kind of, of um, cut what you're saying in smaller and smaller parts. And in the end, you will be able to agree on something. And then we'll bo both be able to do that enthusiastically. What we are doing in our, um, and our, our society we always meet and everybody's kind of begrudged and kind of unhappy, but yeah, we're doing it. Okay, fine. Everybody thinks we're paying more. Usually, uh, even in relationships, usually people think I'm paying more. I'm paying more. Even when you go, go shopping, you think I've spent more money. By the way, when I'm talking about political love, it always sounds like I'm demanding that we make our individual hearts bigger, that we can become better people. They're really, really careful and all the time really look at everything. And that's always nice. And fine, and of course we should all be better people, but I'm talking about structures here. I want structures that allow us to interact with each other 
in life-affirming ways. So here are some bullet points first. To make love politics possible, we need a shared social appreciation of love. Because the problem in capitalism is that the only social values are things that we can count. So like money or infection rates or weapons or whatever. But of course, economic values are not the only values, as we all know. But we cannot measure these other values. So we need a scale and understanding for these other values. And we need a fair economy of love. So when not one individual exploits the labor of love of another one because it's done voluntarily, out of love, so to speak, because then usually people on the lower end of the, the status kind of ladder tend to do all the work of love. And that's not what it's about. So it's about giving this, giving love, giving the, the labor of love a status in society. Second bullet point. We need a community of memory. If we agree that plurality is the basis for a society, then we must also have a pluralistic view of the past. And I've re just written a book about Emily Bronte and the main character, Heathcliff. Every page they say, oh, he's black, he's black, he's black, he's black. So then the first film in, in 2011 um, or 12, Andrea Arnold made a film about Heathcliff with, and, and he was played by a black actor, two black actors as a child and as a grown man and everywhere. This is a surprising new adaptation of the story. And I'm like, have you read the book? So we, we've got this idea that the past, the past was white. <laughs> the past was white. The past is a different country. Now we're different. But in the past, we were, which is not true. The past is just as diverse as the present. So we have to have a diverse view of the past as well. And this means that all members of a society must be part of the culture of memory and not, as is currently the case, a very small selection of the population because really, who identifies with all the guys on horses you see prime time? I'm talking about statues, memorial days, street names, etc. Third bullet point, civic trust. We may not have a politics of love, but we live in a culture of hate. <laughs> a bit overdramatic, yeah. But if we look at the news, the whole rhetoric is geared towards fear and division and banning things. So what can we ban now? So, and the conservative press blames woke as if adjective could do all that on its own. And we, that's the political left, we blame the political right. And um, you should thank God that your language doesn't gender as rigidly as German, because in Germany, everybody blames everything on gendering. So gendering's fault. And the number one best-selling book in Germany at the moment tackles our dysfunctional political debates, which is really, really important. And it does so in the most dysfunctional language possible. We haven't learned how to do this. And that's why we need a rhetoric of trust, of, of finding common ground. We need to learn that. Because it's not that we're nasty, we simply have no idea how to do that. And that means we need to learn these skills. Instead, we learn debates like the Cambridge debate. And that means there are two opposite sides that defend their point. In the end, we all vote who's won, as if these debates were wars. That's why, yeah, let's do that. Let's have two opposing sides and vote on it, like Brexit. That went well. So let's do that. So my fourth bullet point is we need an ed education and love strategies and de-escalation and radical happiness in nonviolent communication and so on. Because the sociologist George Yancey suggests I want you to listen with love. In philosophy, this is called the principle of charity. 
right, is to try to understand what the other pe person says in the best possible sense and not to jump on certain buzzwords, ah, points, ah, appeal to a personal love to hate, like a corona denier, or boomer, or doomer. Germany say schwurbler, which basically means if you say something I don't agree with, then you just say bullshit, and so on. So love politics, by the way, also means listening to ourselves with love, looking at ourselves with that loving gaze. Um, but before we're able to do that, we have to feel safe. Um, only sometimes we can take away all the threat and we still don't feel safe. And that's interesting. So, so I'm, because I'm, I'm a cultural scientist, so um, I always talk about, about knowledge and talking and everything. There's a lot of research being done at the moment about the discuss, uh, connection, for example, between disgust and fear. And we always think, oh, yeah, we're, we're more racist because it's fear of the other. So that xenophobia, fear of the other. Well, very often we're told the correct term should be hate of the other. But research actually suggests that it should be called disgust of the other because disgust seems to come before fear. So, for example, there was an experiment that um, the psychologist David Pizarro did at Cornell University, and he put people in a room and he pumped bad smells into the room, and then they had to do a multiple choice test. And in, in the people in the room with the, with the bad smells, they were a lot more conservative. Their answers were a lot more conservative than on the other day when they were in a room without bad smells. So that's very interesting. So disgust does something to our political view of the world. Also, people in neighborhoods with a lot of germs and bacteria are more afraid of others. And here becomes incredibly interesting and murky. If the threat of infectious disease makes us more fearful, and it does, as research suggests, and if that fear makes us more racist, then that's really bad news at the moment. So I've put insert fart joke here because I haven't got a solution. Anyway, we've got to deal with that. Let's move to my fifth bullet point quickly. We also need civic grace. Civic grace is the willingness to let go of political resentment in order to work together towards a common goal versus political resentment, which is, which is a threat to democracy. And my colleague, the author, Kubra Gumeshai, puts it so beautifully. She was here the other day, wasn't she? She says, we lack a culture of error. We're too quick to put people on, in the identity pillory. So, of course, we can discuss or criticize individual statements. But we don't have a culture of learning from our mistakes or to simply disagree with each other. So, if you look at the media at the moment, we seem to live in a culture where punishment is more important than change. And Stephen Fry said, do you want to be right or effective? And very often it seems like people, it's more important for people to be right than effective. And there are loads of, um, loads of research, for example, um, in America when it's about um, abortion rights. So um, usually when you want to, want to convince someone of your, your viewpoint, you've got, to, um, you've got to look at what's important to them. But so... Um, the, the political right at the moment, they all talk about um, the, the right to live. So that's exactly what doesn't interest. So they, they talk about religion and that's, that won't convince anybody on the left. And the left talk about the right to your own sexuality, which won't convince anybody on the right. So it's basically, it's a waste of arguments. So it's, it's not 
kind of what could reach the other person first of all. And that's something that's happening a lot in our political discussion. We haven't learned how can we basically, first of all, understand the other viewpoint in this. The research shows that the dynamics that lead to outrage, so like scandalizing, calling out, are not the same ones that affect change. So if I say to someone, you're an evil person and how dare you, then they won't reply, oh, thank you, Mito, for telling me I'll change that immediately. But this is how we think political discussions should work. So, um, and, and we always think of dysfunctional families as char characterized by violence. So everybody's hitting each other on the head. But actually, that's not true. They're characterized by boredom because everyone is afraid of making mistakes. So in functional families, people can make mistakes because they know that they can just learn from mistakes and they, they'll still be loved. They'll still be part of the community. And the more dysfunctional, the more people are afraid of ostracized, to be ostracized. And they just basically shut up and it's incredibly boring. Originally, I thought the sixth bullet point would be empathy. I've been thinking a lot about the difference between empathy and compassion lately. Because empathy means we have a lot of empathy with people who are similar to us. And the more similar, the more empathy. But that also means the less similar, the less empathy. So at the moment, you have a lot of empathy with refugees from Ukraine. That's brilliant. Let's keep that up. However, at the same time, refugees from nearly everywhere else can still drown the Mediterranean. And that is that we do that at the same time. And we don't seem to, to have a problem with doing that at the same time. Compassion, on the other hand, is not limited to members of our own group. For compassion, I don't even have to agree with these people. They don't even have to be good people. Compassion is unconditional. Okay, that's all good and well, but shouldn't we talk about the real problems of our time? So what about the climate crisis? That won't go away with a little bit more loving. So. What about the climate crisis? I've been incredibly impressed by the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a professor of environmental and forest biology and the director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment at the State University of New York. She belongs to the citizen Potawatomi. And at the beginning of each class, she gives her students a questionnaire asking them to rate the interaction between humans and the environment. And as a rule, all her students state that we are harmful to the environment, we exploit the earth, cause climate change, poison fields, pollute water, you, you know the list, I don't have to go through it all. Um, you probably remember the memes at the beginning of the corona crisis, so now that people are not leaving the houses because of lockdown, the dolphins are coming back into the Thames and all that. Um, do you remember? We had loads of those. And... Um, Loads of people, and by that I mean my friends, they commented, oh God, we humans, we are the, the virus of the world. And so that, that doesn't give us much hope. So we, we hope to be extinct as quickly as possible to, to, to save the environment. That can't be the solution. But this is basically what all these students were suggestion, suggesting in the questionnaire. And further down, Ormin Wakimura asked them to list any positive interactions they know between humans and nature? And the answer was, no, none. So we can't even imagine what a positive interaction might look like. And, and this from young people who are studying this subject to protect the environment. No idea what that might look like. Because like all of us, they've grown up with the narrative that we're separate. So we're separate from each other. 
and from nature and and um the individuals on a speck of dust hurtling through the universe basically but if we perceive ourselves as separate from nature we cannot interact with it in any meaningful way so we cannot interact with it in a kind of um consensual way so what we can do is exploit the environment have domination over the earth like the bible says or we can save it which is basically the same thing so we're doing it not on on not eye to eye um but we can't live with it as as consensual adults as consensual beings and robin wakimura says that the average american child knows the names of more than 100 corporate logos but only of 10 plants and i asked my children is more or less true and this is a problem because we can only recognize what we already know so if you don't know plant we literally don't see it and the technical term for that is nature blindness or plant blindness so the less names we have for the living world around us the less we learn to value it the less we learn to care for it to have an emotional connection to it and robin wakimura concludes that it's not the environment that is destroyed it's our relationship to the environment that is destroyed or as the ethnobotanist gary nason puts it we cannot move towards healing restoration without restoration and one example one positive example so so how can we do that um that she gives us is the honorable harvest so that's basically the indigenous way of receiving nature's gifts so like kind of you don't pick the first berry so you'll never pick the last and you give something back to the plant to express your gratitude like a song or prayer or you distribute the seed and so on you care for it and robin wakimura conducted an experiment at her university where a doctoral student staked out different plots in a meadow with sweet grass and sweet grass is threatened with extinction there so she left one of these plots completely alone which is roughly our idea of conservation so keep our hands off um one of the plots she harvested carefully by cutting off the stalks but only half of them not all of them and from the third plot she pulled the grass out of the ground by the roots that's the way that basket weavers didn't do that traditionally but also only half of the grass and the biggest challenge for the phd student was to express her gratitude for the gift of the sweet grass but over the months she began to feel kind of growing connection a growing relationship with the grass she still couldn't bring herself to sing to it that was the only thing that she couldn't do so <laughs> part of the curriculum you got to sing to the grass that didn't work and the result of the experiment i think it was over 2 years over a 2 year period was that the sweet grass on the plot that had been left alone was interspersed with dead stalks and and um while it thrived and multiplied on the other two plots that had been harvested um it did so most vigorously on the plot where the grass was pulled out by the roots so that only works with sweet grass not with other grass um which is basically the way the bisons eat the grass too they don't cut it off obviously so humans are not parasites we have something to give but to do so we need to access the knowledge and practices of this interchange so um Ramona Wakimo has written an essay that I really really love so it's called the grammar of animacy and she writes that in Potawatomi that's the language that her ancestors were not allowed to speak any longer there's a word with the meaning the power that drives the mushroom to push through the earth overnight popovi and 
That's just such a great word. So why don't we have a word in our bi biological la language for that? So pupui is a word from a language where the world is full of beings or energies invisible that move everything. While German and English are languages that are mainly made of above nouns, um, and nouns are the most important words. In Potawatomi, it's the other way around. So 70% of all words are verbs. So to be a Saturday is a verb, to be a mountain, to be red, to be a lake, to be a tree. And a tree is only a noun, and that tree is dead. And you've cut it down, and cut it into planks. Um, and Potawatomi is a gram of intimacy. And um, when, for example, we see our grandmother lying on the bed. We don't think, oh, it's in the bed. You would never refer to a person as it because it robs that person of their personality and makes them into an object. But we've made nature into objects. And by thinking about nature, by thinking about trees as it, we erect a barrier between the tree and us. We have no moral obligation towards that tree any longer in the process. We don't just sever the tree from our empathy. We also sever ourselves from the living world around us. And that's why it was so overwhelming when activists succeeded in 2017 in getting the Wanganui River recognized as a person in New Zealand. And that was interesting because when through all the press, um, like, oh, that's, that's curious, that's something in Maori do, that's weird. While people all over the world are standing up for personality rights, for rivers, for lakes, for mountains, for forests, for moors. Because when a river is a legal person, then you can sue a company that's polluting that river. But it also means to acknowledge our need to live meaningful relationships with more than human entities. And that's love politics in action. Love beyond the border of, 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 of our species. And a view of the world based on love will produce a different political theory and most likely a different political practice than one based on hate is a bit melodramatic. But how about political theory based on struggle? Like the Hollywood actress Rose McGowan puts it, I scare because I care. And that's based on the idea we have to force people to behave, to behave so socially. Um, I genuinely believe that that's a fallacy. So that's, that's based on um, doggy dog, the near theory, Lord of the Flies, all of this. So if you, if you don't make people, if you don't force people, then they will be really nasty to each other. And um, in 1965, there was actually, Lord of the Flies actually really did happen. There was six boys were shipwrecked on an island, Atta. And, and they didn't eat each other. They didn't beat each other up. One of them fell down a cliff, broke his leg, and the others just looked after him and fed him. And they were found, I think, two years later, a long time afterwards. And they were all still alive because we care for each other. We're not, it's not our, our deepest nature to be nasty to each other. We can be nasty, very much so. But that's not, we don't have to fight against our, our intrinsic evil. We've got to make it possible for us to live in these life-affirming ways. And in the 60s, love was a past revolution. So make love, not war. And now love is seen as a diametrically opposed to us, diametrically opposed to that. Capitalism packs along us as a commodification of desire. And that's why the left is so cautious or cynical about love. But this results in a lack of self-love, of concepts of self-care that do not immediately turn to cons consumerism. But even more importantly, it results in a lack of utopian thinking. And I've spent the last 
years, probably decades, writing against all kinds of things, against Donald Trump, against racism and sexism and against all the misunderstandings, what that means, and so on. And at some point I realized that I had to start writing for something. And I want to quote Kübra Gümüşay again because I like, love her so very much. And she always, uh, she did a very be beautiful TED talk when I mean, she calls for politics of love. And she says, we need our own agenda in order not to only react to every bone that the right wingers throw us, but to be able to think of utopias. We need love. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. Our guest on this episode was Mitu Sanyal with her Goethe annual lecture, Politics, What's Love Got to Do With It? The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more, both in our institute on Exhibition Road and online. You can find out more on our website at goethe.de forward slash London. For this episode, we worked with Better Lemon Creative Audio and executive producer Hannah Heffman. I've been your host, Lucy Rowan.